This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me, back in Brooklyn, for now. For a little bit, at least. Sometimes on this podcast, we talk to people who make media, and sometimes we talk to people who run big media companies. Today is one of those conversations. It's a long chat with Mark Thompson, who is the CEO of the New York Times for a couple more weeks. Uh, Thompson got there in 2012, and the paper has really flourished since then, and we talked about what he's done to make that happen. Uh, a lot of you know the short answer, it's subscriptions. Uh, but we talk a lot about sort of the mechanics of, of making uh, the Times a better sort of subscription business, uh, what goes into making that happen. There's also a brief discussion of Barry Weiss's departure from the New York Times uh, and what is and isn't happening surrounding that. Um, that's a pretty quick chunk of the, of the conversation, but it's in there if you're so inclined. Before we get there though, talk to IAC CEO Joey Levin about his company's uh, investment in MGM, the casino company. Uh, IAC put a billion dollars into that and it's not strictly media, but I think as most of you know, the gaming slash gambling business and the media business are, are getting closer and closer together um, because of the boom in, in legalized sports betting. Uh, so that's a bet on that. And we wanted to talk about sort of why IAC is, is making that bet that way. All right. So two conversations for the price of one. And that price, again, is zero dollars. So let's get to it. I'm talking with Joey Levin. CEO of IAC. Welcome, Joey. Thank you. We have talked to most of your employees on this podcast at one time or another, so we finally got to the boss man. Uh, you and I will have a longer chat at some point about all things IAC. I wanted to focus on the announcement you guys made Monday, which is that you invested a billion dollars into MGM, the casino casino company. Do we call it a casino company or we call them gaming hospitality? It's the casino company. Casinos, yeah, the casino is only, I think, less than a quarter of revenue, but uh, it is definitely well known for that. Yeah. And that, that bought you a minority stake in the company. And you said, we think MGM is a good investment. It's about half off where it was before the pandemic. And we like the fact that they're moving ahead into online gambling or gaming or whatever we're calling it these days. Did you always want to be in gaming? Have you been looking at that for a while? Or is this something where it sort of popped up on your radar recently? So funny, we actually were in in gaming at one point. We tried and failed. Uh, we were out executed, out gunned, but we had basically the third place player, which no one ever heard of, called Draft Street behind uh, DraftKings and FanDuel, which we we ultimately 
I, I wanted to say sold, but I think we sort of gave to one of them. Uh, when that we, was back when they were in the daily fantasy game. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And uh, they were both very aggressive, very good, and uh, beat the pants off of our competitor. So you waved that off and then said, all right. And so at what point did you go, oh, casinos, gambling, that's attractive. I could imagine you saying, oh, we think online gambling's a big deal. Sports betting has now been legalized. We'd like to participate in that. That's different than investing in a brick and mortar casino operation. Yeah, but in this area, which is, I think, unique, the offline is a significant, we think, asset relative to the online. So think about, there's a lot of different places where it happens, but um, think about the full customer experience. How do you differentiate? How do you uh, excite the customer, delight the customer? Well, in the pure, let's just start with sports betting, in the pure, or, or even the, the, the iGaming, a lot of the experience can be similar. It's the same sports. It's usually generally the same lines. It's generally the same payouts other than sort of promotional moments. So how do you differentiate? Well, having a 360 experience and where, where you can say somebody who's plays a lot can have a real physical experience in a restaurant, in a hotel, uh, in Las Vegas, that actually can be a real differentiator when you think about the digital player's ability to sort of build the offline infrastructure. I think that's much more challenging than the offline player's ability to build the online infrastructure. And MGM is, is they've said publicly and put their money where their mouth is, they're going to be very aggressive in going after the, the online opportunity. Right. So, and, I, and there's there's a specific part about uh, online gambling where it's you pretty much in many ways. Oftentimes, you need a sort of physical partner to get into the business. Each state has its own licensing requirements. Um, but there are, you know, you look at you look at uh, FanDuel, you look at DraftKings. Those guys are online operations that are sort of partnering with existing casinos. It just seems for a internet company, which is what IAC is, a bunch of different brands um, taking on. Even we'll put COVID aside for a second taking on something that has, investing in something that has a big physical infrastructure seems unusual. I agree with that. Uh, and that is a little, actually the whole thing is a little intimidating for us in a way, but th that is, uh, that's true. But look, it's a very well-run company. They've been in this business for a very long time. They know what they're doing in that business. And we're getting that business today for of, relatively cheap price in the sense that if you look at the, the sum of the parts of all the pieces of MGM, you get that business at, a, depends kind of what day, what price you're talking about, but a low, very low single digit multiple on any kind of normalized uh, earnings if you believe that they're that the world comes back to normal at some point. Yeah, I mean, it's roughly, in, in my my dumb math view, half off of sort of where it was uh, earlier in the year, stock-wise. And you did this, and well, more mechanics of this, you did this sort of on the open market, but of course you tell MGM we're doing this, but this is not a sort of Carl Icahn situation where you're saying, I have the lowest demands, I've got criticisms of the company. So I'm a little confused about sort of why you would take what appears to be a passive stake in a company. Is the idea eventually over time you increase it, eventually over time you, you're more hands-on? Or is this purely a financial bet and you hope it works out? No, we think we think we can help. Look, they've said they intend to invite us to the board, which we're excited about. And we think we can be a helpful, positive influence. And when you think about it, all the the businesses that that we get into when we get into a new business, and it's unusual for 
I shouldn't say it's unusual. It's rare for us to get into a new business. I mean, we don't do that all the time. We we make big bets into big businesses and we add to those bets into businesses. But each time we enter a new business, that's not something very that we do very frequently. You know, that was travel as an example, ticketing as an example, dating as an example. Each time we get into those businesses, we don't know very much about that business. I mean, we, we know what we know. We know the underlying fundamentals. We know value we know from the outside. But we certainly aren't adding value even if we control it. From the first minute or the first day when we get into something new, we're not adding a huge amount of value because we have to learn. And I think that's going to be the case in MGM, which is we're learning the industry, we're learning where we can help. And then as we figure out where we can help, I think we we hopefully can be a positive, helpful influence. And we can do what we do with a lot of IAC businesses, which is we say we're not getting these businesses to work together, but we're getting these businesses to say, well, here's something that we learned over here. And again, you can do this just for, by a desire to be helpful, regardless of a board seat or a control or influence. You can say, here's something we've learned over here. And you have access to all of that data of the things we've learned. You have access to all that experience, all the people who have done that and who have done direct marketing or performance marketing or wherever it, it might be. We've got the, the people to offer access to MGM if it's helpful. So you're going to learn the business for the low, low tuition price of a billion dollars, which which also may may end up giving you a return as well. Um, all right. So on, on to COVID, right? So we're talking about an hour after the Big Ten just announced that they're not doing football this fall. So all sports are in flux. Looks like they'll be in flux for some time. And the idea of people coming back to a casino in particular, we saw pictures of it uh, earlier this summer when Vegas had sort of started it up, just looked terrifying from the outside. And it's hard to imagine that business coming back sort of to where it was. Um, do you think it will get there? It's just a matter of time? Or do you think there's a new version of casinos and, and sports books and all that physical infrastructure and going to shows, all the things you associate with Vegas and gambling? I think all those things will come back. Yes. I hope there's new versions of those things and innovations in those areas, but I think all those things will come back. When is obviously the the, the big question, the, the multi-billion or multi-trillion dollar question, but I do think all of those things come back. Look, people are... We don't have the time, but people are optimistic on a vaccine. It's mm-hmm. a vaccine. Why would you not go to those places when there is a vaccine? People like being among other people. People like being among crowds. People like going to concerts and events. That's fun. You always could catch a cold or you could catch a flu or you could catch something in those environments. Now what you can catch is much more serious and much more dangerous. But it is a when we have a vaccine for that, I think people will gather again. So it's straightforward for you. This is just a timing issue. It's just, this is going to come back. It will come back at some point. And you kind of even somehow don't have to worry about when it comes back, as long as it comes back well, over I mean, the course of a couple of years. The, the business runs out of cash, but yeah, the, the, yeah. the company is well capitalized for quite some time. Okay, so is are, are there any of the forays into gaming gambling that you, that you want to make? Uh, or is this the, your bet? It's a billion dollars. This is our bet for now. Look, we've we've always in anything we've done, we've usually started and then continued. But it is uh, this is certainly our bet for now, and we're we're excited by this as as the vehicle to do a lot of things. Okay, before I let you go, this is a podcast where we talk about the media business. Um, I just finished making a seven part series about Netflix. There was a minute or two, a little longer, where you guys were going to get into the subscription video business. You announced that. You you hired people. Yeah. Um, and then basically, and then one day you said, no, nah, actually, we're not going to do that. Turn the car around. True story. Um, and the, the, the gist of it seemed to be, we looked at it, and it's way too expensive. 
um, you've got Apple and Amazon, all these folks coming in. We don't want to throw that kind of money around. Looking back now, do you feel like you made the right call or was there an opportunity that you might have wanted back? I'm so thankful that we made that call when we made that call. You're, you're right about the whole story and the relatively narrow timeline of that. And the, the amazing thing is between the first announcement of in and the second announcement of out, I think several billion dollars of capital entered that market literally in that window. And since then, you know, materially more. And uh, there's lessons you could learn that you if you want to draw an analogy. But the like when we started again in, in the Daily Fantasy, we were outgunned or less than we were willing to do. MGM is big. MGM has scale. MGM is not outgunned in this area. And and I drew this analogy in, in a letter I wrote the other day, but we analogize MGM to Disney in this area where, where they can really deliver a full, complete, exciting, fun, delightful customer experience and monetize that customer in ways that we think in a, in a really uh, exciting way for the consumer in ways that we think other players can't. And is that you also sort of explaining why you guys are not building something on your own from from the ground up? You'd rather piggyback on something else? Definitely. I mean, this is now a big gun game, a very big gun game. Okay, good. We will have a longer conversation about guns. It feels like you're going to break into a lyric from Hamilton any minute. Uh, Maybe I'll get you to sing that at some point uh, on a podcast. Joey, thanks for your time. Thanks, Peter. Thanks again to Joey Levin. Next up, Mark Thompson from The New York Times. Live on tape with Mark Thompson, who, as I'm recording this, is still the CEO of The New York Times, but will no longer be so come September. Is that right, Mark? Yeah, early September. I think Labor Day is my last day in, the, in office. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think you're, you're slowing down to a, to a halt. <laughs> I'm still working, actually. You're, you're still talking to me, so that, that counts as work and, and maybe other be. stuff. So you've, you've had the job for eight years, um, and this – I want to see if I can pull it out from the from – the, the release announcing your departure. During your eight-year tenure, the Times digital readership has jumped to more than 5 million subscribers, up from 640,000. Digital revenue now tops 800 million a year. In 2015, when online sales were at 400 million, you thought they would be at 800 million by this year, which means you've done a good job, or the paper has done well under your tenure. And you came in, as old people remember, just you know a year or two after Smart people were explaining the Times was going to die. The Times was going to have to file bankruptcy. It had taken a, a high-interest loan from Carlos Slim. It looked, it looked to not be uh, in good shape. Now it's in good shape, which is a very long wind-up to say, why are you leaving now? <laughs> well, I mean, no, what happens now is that people tell me that the Times' of success was inevitable. It, mm. it had unique advantages. but uh, You just happened to be there. Those people weren't saying that. Back in 2012, and they certainly weren't buying stock in the company. Then. They probably should have been, but they weren't. Um, well, look, I, I came in and told the board when I arrived, I thought that if um, if things worked out, they didn't work out, I thought they'd fire me very quickly. But if they worked out, I, I said I thought between five and eight years was about right, probably. You know, these kinds of transformations, which are long haul, I mean, the New York Times is still going to be printing a paper 10, 15 years from now. It just requires a lot of momentum. And my own tech, my own view is, you know, a good long stint of five to eight years. And then if you can find the right person to hand on to, let them have a go and then let them hand on in due course as well. So I think sitting in office for decades, which has happened in some American media companies, may be okay when you've got a steady business, which is ticking along quite happily, 
when you're trying to constantly and kind of in a very muscular way, shift it, move it, keep the pace up, go on accelerating, I think having a series of kind of runners in the relay race makes sense. And so you came in at the get-go and said, I'd like to get out of here by 2020, roughly. I said, I said that's probably the time frame. Yeah. And, and uh, I'm confused. Do you have a, a, a thing lined up or, or are you actively saying you have no thing lined up? I'm, I'm saying I have no thing lined up. Okay. Uh, I'm going to, I've been uh, uh, you're not a, a you're not a, you're, you're a youngish man. You, you still have a second or third uh, option here. Of course. And, yeah. and uh, I'm sure, uh, you know, I'm hungry. I, my thing is I love big, juicy, difficult, strategic puzzles there might be one as an executive. I've been a CEO for 18 years. There might be another executive gig, or it might be several different challenges. People who listen to this podcast know that the, 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 sort of the main story about the Times is that you guys have sort of changed your business model, going from an ad-supported business model to a reader-slash-subscriber-supported one. You still have a lot of advertising revenue, but you guys have, have sort of made that shift uh, quite publicly and quite successfully. Was that already sort of were the tracks of that laid down when you showed up back to sort of the idea that, yes. that, that, that this was going to happen anyway? And, 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 and what sort of significant changes or maybe you didn't have to make significant changes to make that plan work? Well, I think firstly, actually go, go back into the deep history of the Times. And I think, you know, back in the 70s, uh, late 70s and 80s, the Times was beginning to think about serious home delivery subscription and becoming a national paper. And it was pricing. It was, uh, you know, getting a home delivery subscription to the Times back then was expensive. Yes. So the the idea of a special relationship with loyal readers, a daily habit, and reaching out beyond New York to the whole of America in the same period, the Times also took complete control of the international, the old Herald Tribune. So I think a lot of the basic elements actually go back a generation or more, but the insight that the Times could be the news provider ultimately for the world, certainly for the whole of America, and that the direct paying relationship with the subscriber was probably a really smart way of thinking about the economics, admittedly alongside a very lucrative print advertising business. Uh That's deep history. And more recently, just 18 months before I arrived, the Times had launched its third, and unlike the first two, successful digital subscription model. So that was already running. However, it was palpably running out of steam. But by the time I got there, there was a very strong feeling inside the building that we topped out and topped out at about around 600,000 subscribers. So about a tenth of what it was it is now. Right. That was sort of the in the know thought was like, all right, you guys have gotten everyone who's going to be a New York Times subscriber within that first couple of years. And there was a real sense in the industry that there was a limit to what you could do, that that, that because there was so much uh, journalism available for nothing on the internet, because historically almost no one, the Times in its heyday reached about 1.6, 1.7 million subscribers. No one got above two. Uh, Maybe the Wall Street Journal had been about two two, two and a half in print at one point. There was a limit to it. And what you were going to do is you were going to exploit the the big digital audience that you built up over 20 years, uh, 15 years, whatever it was, you were going to, at that point, hit some kind of plateau, and then you were done. And by my second full quarter as CEO, second quarter of 2013, I think we had 23,000 digital ads. You know, this now compares mm-hmm. with numbers like six, 700,000 yep. digital ads in a quarter. And it seemed to be it seemed to be over. And the problem with that is, Digital advertising was at this point in reverse. 
print advertising was very seriously and irrecoverably in reverse. And although print subscription was stable, it was only stable because the, the company was putting in price rises of 5% or, or so a year, and it was kind of adding 5% to the price and losing 5% to the customers. So this all looked pretty fragile. And so between 2012, late 2012, when I started, and 2015, we were kind of trying to dig deep to figure out, is that it? What else can we do to try and stimulate growth? And some of that growth came from you know, new things like NYT cooking, um, like really building up the Crossword app, later on beginning with podcasts. But actually the biggest single thing we did was kind of open up the hood and look really closely at the digital sub-model and get a lot more expertise into that. And the other thing we did was we, we invested more in journalism. From about 2014 onwards, we're putting money into our newsroom and adding journalists at the same time that most other newsrooms are actually making their smaller. That turned out to be a really, really good thing to do. Because another piece of, of conventional wisdom was that the Times was was going to be okay, but it certainly wasn't going to be able to support the newsroom at the size it was. This is back in 2012, 2014, 2015, that it inevitably have to shrink. I think now it's, what, 1,700 people? Yeah, it's about, it's about 250, 300 people more than it was at the time when people were saying that. It's colossal and, and very high profile. Um, and, and obviously there was a Trump bump that's been much dis- discussed, but you're saying, look, we, we, we'd figured something out prior to that. Was, was there a single piece of insight or was there a particular mechanism that was most useful as you were sort of going back and looking at the, the digital sub-model and figuring out how you could improve it? I think the, the two big things I want to say is the first thing is that point about journalism, that actually this is a moment when you know, if you'll read Hastings and Netflix, you're pouring money into content. Mm-hmm. Why? Because that's what you've got to sell to, to, and you want it to be as good as it can be, and you want it to be as broad as it can be. And our industry was saying the opposite. No, 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 you need to cut costs. You need to reduce the the cost of, of, of uh, your spending on journalism. And we just took this contrarian view, which is actually that's ridiculous if you if you cut back on your newsroom you're going to destroy your chance of being this valuable distinctive thing that people will pay for and, and the incredible thing is to this day most news publishers are are not following this this track they're still trying to cut i mean i have to say the news industry spends a long a lot of time trying to bl- find other people to blame for what's happening significantly the news industry's woes are self-inflicted and this is a good example if you cut the thing that you're selling so the, the quality and the choice reduces. Don't be too surprised when you can't get a submodel to work. Mm-hmm. But the, the other thing was that the, the way the Times um, was doing digital needed some changes. We needed a, a lot more expertise. There was still an element in 2012 of, as it were, traditional print newspaper people trying to have a go at digital. And actually, to be fair to them, they launched what's become the world's most successful digital pay model. But actually, to take it to the next stage, we needed just many, many more data scientists, really experienced product people. We needed many more, and in some ways, more appropriate uh, computer scientists and, and so on. And we needed to work in a different way. And we moved from a traditional media model of very strong vertical silos where you, to assemble a team to, to work on a, on a product or a feature, you'd have reps from these different silos getting into a room but all of them kind of 
kind of looking back up at their home. They had their, they had their own turf, yeah. And it was like the kind of UN, the product guys were like blue-helmeted UN peacekeepers trying to keep this whole thing on the road. And what we've now got is a very different uh, system where we have missions, we have, we've got a mega um, engagement mission, how do we get more people to engage, come back to the times day after day, we've got a subscription growth mission. And within this, there are these teams who are led often by very kind of junior um, leaders in the company, often late 20s, early 30s. And they've got, it's like a little regimental combat team. They've got everything. They've got a machine learning team. We, we kind of glue these machine learning teams onto these different missions. They've got their own engineers. They've got journalists in the room, editors in the room. They've got designers. They've got marketing people. If necessary, they've got advertising people. They've got a very now, nowadays, not in 2012 at all, but now they've got really good testing and learning platforms and they can just conduct their experiments and are very extensively allowed to implement changes, optimizations, improvements on the ground in the light of what they're seeing in the experiment. So it's much more of a kind of organic bottom-up process of change rather than the old structures, as it were. But what you're describing is we, we had this product. It was a good product. We made it better by put, by hiring more journalists, but presumably it makes it 10% or 20% better. It's still the same core product. And the sub-model is still the same sub-model. We have better people sort of operating it, yeah. um, better but, processes. But, but there's it's, it's, it's still fundamentally the same thing that you, you inherited in 2012. So let me let me add one other thing, which goes like this. Essentially, I, I think the Times in 2012 was stuck with what you might call a facsimile uh, strategy with digital. You've got a beautiful, and it is a beautiful physical newspaper. How how closely can you port that physical newspaper uh -huh. to a, to a desktop? And so the desktop looked like as much as it could, like a page one of the A book sort of thing, the the home screen. And then there was an RSS feed to a, a smartphone app. So the smartphone app was actually fed off the home screen of the desktop, which itself was slaved to the physical paper. Well, two things. Firstly, the, the most important platform for the future was obviously the smartphone. How people use smartphones is not just a question of acting. It's not like watching a TV show on a smartphone, which is indeed very like the TV show you could see on cable TV. Yes, People get up at seven o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning. They they want to know what's happened overnight. They, they 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 reach for their phone. What's happened? You need a new a newsroom which is awake, alive, producing briefings. You know, it's got journalists on the ground. Seven o'clock in the morning in twenty twelve, the New York Times newsroom was deserted. There were a few folks with you know vacuum cleaners cleaning it. So, beginning to shape your product around the actual user and their patterns of behavior changes everything. It changes the way the newsroom works. We've now got and have had for a few years teams in London and Hong Kong who keep the New York Times alive. So edit, editorial teams. Right. They're on, not they're on, not on the bridge. Right. It's not the London and Hong Kong bureau. They're producing the they, paper they for everyone. I mean, yeah. and I remember there was a terrible evening a few years ago, the awful Las Vegas shooting where many, many people were killed. That was edited from Hong Kong. The command of the of the of the news report was in Hong Kong at that point. And so you've got this kind of global system now. But more than that, the audience is much more in the room than it was. And both the kind of journalism you do and the ergonomics of the experience on the smartphone 
everywhere, including, by the way, now the physical paper, is much more attuned to understanding what's going on there. And this doesn't mean dumbing it down or popularizing. It means just simply understanding what's going on and recognizing that the the audiences are far, far bigger than they now. We've been getting in recent months audiences of 200 to 250 million a month. And these are not stereotypical uh, New York Times readers. In fact, most of them have probably never seen a, a physical New York Times. They've come to the New York Times via, you know, our podcast, The Daily, or they've come because they've heard about it, you know, from a friend or they're interested in popular music or when, um, you know, um, there was a, a, a death in the music industry or Kobe Bryant. They, they, yeah. That's how they track that through Twitter or through uh, through Facebook. And so our, our, our market, I mean, Texas is a very good market for New York Times subscriptions now, uh, a growing market. And the that's higher, not, that, not just Austin, that's, that's across Texas. It's not, no, no, it was interesting. You, you'd expect, of course, America's college towns to yeah. kind of shine bright in the map. But um, Dallas-Fort Worth is a, is a burgeoning, multi-ethnic megalopolis in its own strange kind of spread out way. That's a very good market for us. So the market's changed. That's partly because the comportment of both the newsroom and of the rest of the company to its audience is more sensitive and more responsive. And I think we've done that without losing the um, the sense of specialness uh, that the Times has always had. Hey there, we're going to pause our conversation with Mark Thompson. We'll be right back after we hear from some fine sponsors. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And we're back with Mark Thompson. Can we talk about incentives and sort of what drives, I mean, let's stipulate that all journalists want to do good work and, and they want to hold, uh, uh, you know, power to account. Um, and they also like seeing their name in print. But you still hear, there's still confusion, I, I will see, especially on Twitter, about why a story is being written and it's being written for clicks. Um, and then the New York Times says, no, we never do that. And then someone will say, well, it's the same thing. as uh, Trying to get someone to subscribe is the same thing as click. So you, you publish stories for that reason. Um, the Times says, no, we're doing good journalism. You talk to people inside the Times, say, oh, so-and-so stories get great traffic. So it's certainly something that, that people within the Times are aware of, that, that a story does well, that a particular writer generates a lot of attention. So what, what does the Times... Other, let's, let's stipulate that you want to do good journalism, but, but sort of what generates revenue for you in the end? Is it a certain kind of story? Um, is it bringing in a new subscriber? Is it keeping an existing subscriber? How, what's the most valuable sort of things as, as an editorial product can do? The key thing for the Times is not the performance of individual stories, but the way in which the news report over time sparks loyalty and in particular frequency, people coming back. And essentially what we want to try and do is help people move from consumption of individual stories, no matter how popular or unpopular, to patterns of return, which can be for things like briefings 
or can be through a storyline. So you become interested in climate change. We're making it easier and easier for you to, as it were, go through a timeline of our coverage and to broaden from one part of the coverage to another. We've also found that on the business side that long introductory offers, we we typically have offers for, for new subscribers of $2 a week for a year or, or sometimes $1 a week for a year. And that year itself is a habituation tool. Having spent some money, the subscriber tends to use the times much more than if they were a non-subscriber, particularly an anonymous non-subscriber. And over the year, their loyalty grows. So at the end of the year, we're very good at migrating those guys to higher prices and in many cases to full price. So, And that's the same as any subscription business, right? I mean, you give someone a long trial and, and hope they convert because they've they've used to consuming it and used to paying something for it. Yeah, though, again, in our industry, I still see a lot of the traditional very short trials, the sort of mm-hmm. 99 cents for four weeks or free for four weeks. And so I, I would say that state-of-the-art subscription businesses often think about longer introductory So 12, 12 bucks for a year. I have, you, you're with me for a year. You've, you've paid me something. And now we can start playing with those numbers. That's right. That's right. But crucially, if we haven't satisfied that customer over the year and they haven't got any value out of it, they'll churn out. I mean, the the, the point is the customer is king. And it's not about simple clicks. It's not about page views for, for a handful of top stories. It's much more about... Over time, can you win their confidence in, in different kinds of stories? How good is your business coverage? How good is your coverage of TV or popular culture or whatever? So when I hear someone in the newsroom saying, oh, man, so-and-so stories always go viral and the editors love that, is that someone misinterpreting the business objectives or they're just saying, look, it's a scoreboard like any other scoreboard we want to do well? I don't think. I mean, there are, there are plenty of really good uh, news organizations who've had, as it were, separate click-driven businesses. Uh, the Washington Post, I think, is a really good example of it. Well, the Washington Post is doing some really great, serious journalism. They've always had a kind of generic, high-volume, um, sort of clicky side to, mm-hmm. to the output, which is, I think is done by different people in, in the newsroom. The Times has never had that. And the, the, the intention with the Times is every piece, every single piece of journalism is intended to adhere to the kind of high-minded, mission-driven version of Timesian journalism, of, of kind of weight and substance. And the Times continues to produce. We're producing 200 pieces of content a day, something of that order. Uh, there's still a vast amount of, co- of content that we produce, which does not produce many clicks and is there because we've always done it um, and we believe we should do it. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was uh, quite reassuring this spring to realize how many science reporters you guys had uh, that were all could be put together uh, uh, in, on the pandemic story and probably most of those bylines I hadn't seen before. I, I confess I'd never read Bob McNeil's work until The Daily introduced me to him. And now I shudder every time I click on those stories. I've just started an email correspondence with Donald, actually. Um, uh, and I've, I've talked to him several times over the years. I do think that's another really good example of something else about the Times, and one of the reasons it's good to have a, a, a newsroom of 1,750 people. It's like the fire brigade. You, you don't, you, the fire trucks aren't needed every day. In particular, you don't need 10 fire trucks and one fire every day. Sometimes you do. Yeah. And uh, I think our ability, the, the COVID story is a obviously a medical and health story. It's a national political story, national economic story. It's a geopolitical story and so on. It's affecting everything, the way we live, you know, literally what you do with your children. 
And The Times is uniquely well suited to cover that story well because we have these different departments. Back to the subscription model for a second. Um, Another criticism slash question you often hear raised about The Times is those subscribers are likely part of a tribe. They likely have certain political affiliations are likely liberal. What happens when you produce work they don't like? This always centers sort of on the opinion page. That if, if do you need to create work that sort of comports with their worldview and isn't going to upset them? And if you write too many Brett Stevens, if you run too many Brett Stevens pieces and you upset too many liberal New York, uh, New York Times subscribers, you're, you're going to harm the business in some way. There's pressure to, to satisfy them. How, how do you deal with that? So step back, firstly. The subscription base of the times is much bigger than it's ever been before mm-hmm. and it's somewhat broader so this is i mean it, it's worth saying that this is against the context of us attracting more women more younger people more people who are not in new york more people who are not on either coast and as i've said growing markets like like texas and ohio in the middle of the country so the backdrop is net net we are broadening the audience of the times but At the same time, this is an incredibly polarized moment to state the obvious in American politics and also American public life. Friends argue about politics. uh, Cities argue. uh, The whole country's arguing. And we're trying to reflect and, in a sense, bring some light to that argument in our opinion pages. Uh, We hired Brett. I mean, Brett is absolutely, Brett Stevens and his arrival in the the Wall Street Journal a few years ago is a good example of one of the ways in which which we've been trying to broaden opinion. Mm -hmm. And if you say that not everyone agrees with every opinion they read in the New York Times, I mean, (laughs) it's a moment in history where I think it would be pretty strange if we were attempting to only do opinion that, that it, as it were. It seems strange to me, but you you were, of course, aware of the criticism that giving a Brett Stevens or name name your name your conservative or name your senator, right? In in the case of the cotton op ed, yeah. uh, that the giving them space in the in the times is a significant thing. It's a choice, and that and then when you make the wrong choice, uh, and I'll. I, for some reason, I subscribed. I follow the New York Times uh, uh, customer care Twitter feed, and I'll see people who are desperately trying to, to unsubscribe. Yeah. I'm just wondering um, how the, the bulk of the paper is supposed to sort of think about that. Is, is that something they should be spending time thinking about? I, I, I absolutely believe that reflecting a full range of opinion, mm-hmm. including opinions which many, some, many of our readers will disagree with and may even find offensive is a central part of the New York Times' mission and always has been. Uh, Adolf Ox, uh, when he buys the newspaper at the end of the 19th century, talks about wanting to have an intelligent civil debate reflecting all shades of opinion. And I think it's central to the Times' mission and always has been. And my view, my advice always would be, if you don't like or think you might be offended by um, something you read, stop reading. Don't, don't, don't put don't put yourself through it, sort of thing. But I think the idea the idea is you go further. The idea is you go further and actually say, well, nobody else should read this either. I think is a false step, as it were. Do you see meaningful uh, declines in subscriptions and people canceling after a particular article or after Barry Weiss's departure? Is it is it something you can actually track that shows up that's statistically meaningful? It's it, well, we can certainly track it. Uh-huh. Uh, we can certainly track it. Uh, whether people cancel online or cancel through a call center, not all of them, but many of them will give a reason. So we can we can track what's going on. But I mean, you, you'll have seen the most recent quarter at the Times, uh, which is, for example, the quarter where um, du- during which Barry Weiss resigned and wrote her famous open resignation uh-huh. letter. 
I mean, we, you know, we, we, um, we, we gained uh, nearly 700,000 subscribers. I mean, th- th- there's a flood, <laughs> an absolute flood, unprecedented flood. I mean, that's about, uh, it's about the same as my first three years as uh, chief executive mm-hmm. that, that quarter. And although, of course, it's regrettable when anyone is offended or angry enough that they want to cancel their subscription, when that's n- never, never something not to take seriously. But it's not in any economic sense significant when on the contrary what's happening is there's a flood of people trying to start subscriptions to the new york times in the run-up to barry weiss leaving uh there was a lot of uh internal fighting at at the times on slack you stepped in at one point and told everyone to sort of cool it and be more civil did you foresee this happening when slack entered the 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 times that the ceo would have to weigh in and tell everyone to, to chill out yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure why, why I was the chosen. Uh, I was the chosen parent, as it were. <laughs> but, uh-huh. but, but look, the in, particularly during COVID, but even before COVID, the, the fact that we've got colleagues who want to engage in debates and who care passionately about what the Times does is a good thing. And when I talk to, I talked to the, in a, 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 a kind of full company town hall about this. I basically, firstly thanked everyone for getting engaged and, and said we want to encourage them to engage more. I mean, so the, the basic notion that people who work for the New York Times should care passionately uh, about what the Times does and should debate sometimes what it does, I think it's that you want an engaged, lively, caring staff. We've got them. We want That's what we want. All I was saying to people in that call was, just be careful of the boundaries and be careful of using the kind of language which, rightly or wrongly, could be interpreted as threatening or abusive or disrespectful, and which you probably wouldn't use to someone face-to-face. So just, just it's more like the rules of the road there. And it's not really about what the substance of what people say. It's, it's when you get to remarks which can, I say, appear threatening or harassing or, or abusive in a way which, you know, we want an environment where we have very honest conversations with each other, but we don't descend to a kind of abuse. And this is something Barry Weiss brought up in her resignation letter, that, that, that people were abusive or threatening toward her on Slack. Do you think that's a fair point? Well, I mean, we, we, we've asked Barry um, subsequent to that letter, and, 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 and in utter seriousness, um, she said some very serious things. Uh, she said she'd been the victim of anti-Semitism. She said she'd been called a Nazi, for example, two of the things, two of the things she said. We've asked her to provide detail, and we've done a lot of looking on Slack and elsewhere. We can't find um, specific examples of that, and she hasn't yet provided specific examples of that. I, what I would say is strong opinions and strong debate, I think, is absolutely permissible and indeed ultimately i think is a healthy thing for the reasons i've said abusive remarks particularly kind of racist abusive remarks are totally unacceptable but to to act upon it we would need evidence and as yet we don't have any evidence i'm going to do a hard right turn um to ask you about the platforms (laughs) uh this is something we used to spend a lot of time talking about what's what's new york times facebook strategy how are you guys going to deal with apple and google it's still relevant it seems less pressing in some ways. Uh, in 2015, 2016, you were you were initially uh, one of the the partners at, uh, when Facebook was doing its instant. What's it called? Instant articles. Instant, instant articles. Uh, in, how quickly? How quickly? Yeah. I forget. That's right. Instant uh, we articles. Actually, 
we were only ever marginally engaged with instant articles. We instant articles for a whole variety of reasons. But you were an initial partner. It was important to them that you had signed on. They sort of made a point of, of wanting you guys to be bought in at the beginning. Uh, I was I, I had a longer. I have, my questions go quite long, actually. It turns out. Uh, and then in in 2018, uh, someone from Facebook pulled this quote for me. He said, "When it comes to news, Facebook still doesn't get it." That's you in 2018. And now your uh, Meredith is going to take your job. Says we have a very constructive relationship with with Facebook in 2020. Yes. So it's a it's a five year a five year span. But but has something what has happened at Facebook to sort of get you guys to the detente you're at now? Well, we we got very very exercised, and I personally got very exercised in 2018 about a series of moves that Facebook um, made then, essentially in relation to marketing, where. They run under a lot of heat because of uh, political marketing, political advertising, and they summarily informed us one day that they were going to all of the New York Times' marketing, much of which consists simply of putting Times journalism in front of, of Facebook users. Paying for be, distribution of your articles. But, but to encourage them to subscribe, yeah. was going to be labeled political advertising because they said they couldn't tell the difference between journalism and political advertising. That's what the... Facebook doesn't get news mm-hmm. um, and doesn't understand the difference was, was what I was referring to. Since then, we've been in the dialogue. Um, well, I've, been to, I've, you know, I've, I've been in dialogue with Mark and Cheryl and, and others at, at Facebook. And in, in the end, Facebook withdrew that policy, didn't fully imp- implement it. Um, we took part in their um, the news tab. They introduced the new Facebook news tab. And indeed, Facebook is paying us a good deal of money over a multi-year contract to be present there. And, you know, we think that's broadly good. But the each of the platforms, their strategy changes are strategy changes. And the, the, these are very dynamic relationships. I mean, our spirit, certainly the spirit I brought, and I think Meredith, I suspect, will continue, is to be pragmatic. We're not waiting for governments and regulators to step in. We also we're not going to blame the big platforms for what's the internet and the loss of the a lot of the traditional advantages newspaper publishers have. The world changed. We've got to change because the world changed. Where we can and wherever we can, we want to forge win-win uh, partnerships with the big platforms. We Google with Facebook and others. I think quite often we've done that. It seems like you are you are among a handful of media companies that um, can sort of chart your own course when it comes to platforms. You know, Netflix would probably prefer to sell uh, subscriptions within the Apple iOS system, but they don't, and they don't need to, right? They don't want to take that 30% haircut or 15% haircut, so you can't subscribe to Netflix. Long way of saying it seems like you, uh, there was a period where everyone sort of thought you had to sort of be aligned with Facebook and with Google and maybe Apple um, if you wanted to get your your information out, if you wanted to get your stuff in front of people, and it seems like you don't have that problem. We took a, a, a deliberate decision back in 2015, and we said this to our colleagues in the world that we had to be we had to be a destination, we had to be a place people came. And this was a moment when many publishers, particularly the digital publishers, thought you didn't have to be. It was okay if people didn't often come to to you on your own. You're proud of that properties. strategy. That was the BuzzFeed had a whole long, I mean, I, I sat through a whole long lecture from Jonah Peretti where he explained how that was going to work. What I want to say is I, I can't speak 
to Jonah and, and BuzzFeed. I can speak to the New York Times. I felt that would have been catastrophic for the Times. The Times had to be a place. You, you had to be a place you go to and you come back to and where you experience the journalism in, in, a, cura- in a curated place. The real risk with the big digital platforms and news consumption on those platforms is it's a magic mix in which news from all kinds of different sources is kind of put in the blender and just sprayed out. And the user loses the context and all those little cues which tell you what you believe, what you don't believe, and all the rest of it. I think everyone gets that, right? But it's one thing to say that and one thing to say, well, we're going to build a destination because in most most cases the destination strategy doesn't work. Well, again, I, I wonder how plan. many people have tried it, honestly. I mean, I, I think the, the, the lack of confidence is so great in our industry. Very few people have had the nerve to try it. And many people inside the Times, not many, but some people inside the Times were very sceptical. I mean, every one of the things we've done, you know, the subscription first strategy, the destination strategy will be examples there's been intense internal debate and a lot of skepticism about whether these things would work or not. Now, they, it turns out they have worked. You know, and what we haven't seen, we haven't seen many people copying us. We don't see much investment in newsrooms. We don't see people doubling down on their own products. I mean, we, one of the basic points for me is this is a capital-intensive period in media. You know, whether it's streaming TV, uh, whether it's music, whether it's podcasts. You brought up uh, the idea of regulation and not waiting on regulation. Um, There is a lot of discussion in various countries about sort of compelling the platforms to behave in one way or another. There's a a case in Australia we're all watching um, where the the idea is a a group there is going to sort of arbitrate a fee between Google and and or something between Facebook and, and the Australian papers. Do you think that's a model that is replicable across the world? I think the idea of some kind of new settlement around the use by the big platforms of journalistic intellectual property probably is coming and may maybe a good thing, maybe a good thing. I think it needs very careful thinking through. I think there are real dangers in interposing regulators, which ultimately means politicians mm-hmm. and political parties between the public and um publishers and the risk of abuse the risk of once um you've got newsrooms which are partly dependent on a flow of money which is mandated by governments the risk that that, that you get abuse there and more and more political involvement i think is real and if we can come up with as we're trying to do at the new york times uh, models which are intrinsically commercially successful for for the times but also work well for the platforms to me that's a better path actually right um, so you guys have struck deals with facebook and uh, at least where they're paying you for use of your content right pretty straightforward yeah. and the idea yeah. with some of these regulators to say well not everyone is going to have the times capacity to do that and we're just going to we're going to have one that that fits all our publishers it strikes me i'm guessing that that facebook would be much more likely to say we're just not going to do business in this country. We're not going to have a Facebook news feed and we'll just remove this problem altogether. Um, and it, it seems like a much more, it seems at least as likely as that I'm actually paying up. I guess so, though I have to say that if you're talking about the maybe not individual 
countries in Europe, but if you're talking about the whole of the European Union, the, mm-hmm. the world's biggest economy, that becomes painful, I think, for the big platforms. So, I mean, I think, in a sense, the political pressure is they, they They don't leave. They just say, we're not going to have a news feed anymore, and we're just not going to have that. If, if people want to distribute their own articles on that. Facebook, and, and, that's fine, but we're, not, we're no longer going to have any such thing. And there are some examples of Google in Spain doing something, mm-hmm. so doing something like that. Um, so it's coming in some form. I hope it's not, though, just a cozy deal between existing legacy publishers and governments, uh, um, which in the end the big platforms either cave into or don't cave into. You know, we need real plurality. We need scope for entirely new players to get into the space. I would rather that we begin to work out what do deals on intellectual property look like. So rather than sort of compulsory payments based on some sort of crude measure, e.g. clicks, mm-hmm. you know, the, the X number of clicks and you get X, X amount of pay, which simply is going to favour big existing players. There's something around, in a sense, the quality of the content that's produced. There are a lot of the content that's produced is frankly a very you know not all intellectual property is the same not not all of it is as invested in so i think i i worry that this sounds like a sort of like a really simple way and it suits people politically because they'd love to punish these very big companies and bluntly it suits non-american governments to some extent because these are big foreign companies Mm -hmm. Um, if you're if you're french or australian or whatever the idea of punishing big Silicon Valley companies will feel a lot easier than maybe punishing some of your own big companies. So I think there's a lot of kind of, you know, below the surface, there's a bit of protectionism in this mix as well. And it's all been done very quickly. And as we know, that doesn't always lead to the right results. You can very easily get unintended consequences from very rapid sort of Band-Aid type uh, legislation. So it's coming. I think the idea over time that we get clearer about how someone who is essentially borrowing some of the intellectual property, um, so something which is more than a simple link or a simple headline, it's a short-form version of a piece of journalistic content which actually took some time and trouble to make. That's the kind of good heart of this. The modalities of how you do it, I think we're going to see lots of experiments in lots of jurisdictions. And let's just see. But let's be careful we don't end up creating new problems by doing this. Last question. We're a podcast. I need to ask you a podcast question. What does buying cereal get you? Uh, The production company behind cereal uh, estimated $25, $50 million. You're buying a small staff. They have a small library of shows. Um, we've seen other podcast acquisitions. People are generally buying bigger teams that have made more stuff. Uh, what does buying cereal do for the Times at that price? Well, the, 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 the New York Times is a, is a very picky buyer. We kind of, you know, we, we, we find it hard. Uh, we bought only a few things since I've been chief executive. We find it very hard to find, if you like, journalistic shops which meet our ideas of journalism and our standards. Wirecutter, which we bought a few years ago, really does do that. We think Serial does. And we're also also delighted to have this new relationship with this American life. And on the ground, what that means is when you think of the 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 most respected and indeed most popular podcast, journalistic podcasts out there, we now have, you know, special access to three of them, our own uh, The Daily, the uh, the products of Serial, 
Uh, we've got one on on the air already, as it were. A new podcast, uh, "Nice White Parents," uh, is is playing already out of that relationship. There'll also be window for for much of this American life, and you know, and indeed, your 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 friend and partner in arms, Kara uh, Swish, is joining us. We're we're building her, up. Yeah. We're building up a body of what we think of as the very best work. And taken together, I think that's going to make a very formidable bundle of, of high-quality podcasting. Okay. Um, so we can we can debate what, what, what the price. How much is Kara getting paid to go over there, by the way? It, the, the number is so large, I, can't, I dare and say it uh, maybe, out loud. Maybe, maybe she'll come on this <laughs> podcast and tell us. All right, Mark. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, let you go. You've been very patient with us. Uh, hopefully, you can't tell by listening to this, but we had some audio difficulty during this recording. Uh, Mark Thompson, thanks for your time. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Thanks again to Mark Thompson. Thanks again to Joey Levin. Thanks again to Joel and Jelani who assemble this thing every week by hand, so you can listen to it. And thanks again to our sponsors, and thanks again to you guys for listening. Provide me all that feedback. Love to hear it. Uh, fun podcast coming up for you next week. Stay tuned. See you soon.